Hello. So good to see you again. Welcome back to the Gallery of Curiosities. I will be your host for the evening, Leopold. I've been thinking a lot about pets as of late. The gallery is animal friendly, of course, so we have quite a few interesting creatures skittering about. My pet ocelot, Frankenstein, is around here somewhere. If you see him, offer him a hand to sniff. If he doesn't eat it, he probably likes you. People often judge us by the pets we keep. And of course, if your pet happens to look particularly ferocious, folks tend to walk the other way when they see you coming. In a world where our companion animal is our own impending doom, however, judgments become more complicated. This evening's exhibit comes by way of Ms. Natasha C. Calder, a writer from Ely in the United Kingdom. She has a Master of Philosophy in Medieval Literature from the University of Cambridge and is a graduate of Clarion West 2018. Her work has previously appeared in The Stinging Fly, Lackington's, and Burning House Press. It will be read for us by Ms. Jasmine Arch. The Death Trade by Natasha C. Calder Holding her death in her arms, Ada sat on the bench beside the round church and watched the passers-by. Across the road, two young girls stopped to press their noses against the glass of the sweet shop window until an older woman, wearing the stern expression and dark practical dress of a nanny, chivied them along. One girl obeyed immediately, but the other, the smaller of the two, paused a moment longer and surreptitiously patted her coat pocket. There was something about the girl's movement, the tender curve of her fingers, the incline of her neck, that Ada recognized as the posture of one reaching for a hidden death. At a sharp command from the nanny, the girl's hand dropped guiltily from her pocket to her side. She hitched her skirts and hurried to catch up, vanishing down St. John Street with a flash of white muslin. Ada remembered what her own death had been like at that age. A helpless thing with fur like lilac smoke, and so small that she could carry it in the palm of one hand. By the time of her thirteenth birthday, of course, her death had grown too large to be easily concealed in a coat pocket. That was when she'd been given her first proper dress, with wide sleeves that fell down past the knuckles, such that she could carry her death in the crook of her arm or curled round her wrist and it would be kept safely out of sight. Although Ada was nearly twenty now, her death had grown little in the intervening years. The lilac had darkened to a deep violet that was sometimes rippled through with indigo and its form had started to become a little clearer, pores and muzzle materialising out of the soft haze of shadow. But it was still no longer than her forearm, and still spent most of its time contentedly asleep. At least, she thought it was asleep. Given that it had yet to develop eyes, it was near impossible to tell. She should have been glad. A stunted death was a sure sign of a long, healthy life. And yet, her sentiments tended more towards dissatisfaction. 
much as she might wish it were otherwise, she knew hers was the death of one who had seen little of life. A gentleman wearing a scholar's gown trimmed in Magdalene colours came down the pavement on the far side of the wall that bordered the churchyard. He was not the man she was waiting for. That much was evident from the sleekness of the death draped round his neck, and he sneered disdainfully at Ada as he passed. She resisted the urge to sneer back. Of all the scholars she'd encountered, it was only the men of Magdalene who made a point of being affronted by the sight of a woman's death. Most colleges nurtured a more daring outlook. It was even said the lady scholars of Corpus Christi and Kings wore their death-like stoles inside the college grounds, and no one so much raised as an eyebrow. But Magdalene remained staunch in its support of the belief commonly held by wider society that no civilized woman should bear her death. Usually, Ada only dared walk about with her death on show when she was wearing one of Charlie's suits. She would braid her auburn hair neatly on top of her head, conceal it beneath a flat cap, and cut through the market square with her death in plain view on her shoulder, her heart beating in her throat, her eyes wild with the exquisite fear of being caught. Today, however, she was wearing an old calico dress of simple design, one that had already been threadbare and faded when it was first given her. Since then, she'd worn it so often to cart bootleg gin to Charlie's customers in Granchester that the hem was stained with mud from the path that ran through the meadows. So long as she took care to moderate her posture and expression, the dress's ragged appearance was enough to transform her into a lowly beggar. It was her most serviceable disguise for trading her death. There had, of course, been no such need for a disguise in the very first trade. It had happened nearly a year ago, when the son of one of Charlie's London associates, due to sit the entrance examinations for Kings, came to stay with them in Romsey Road. Ada had never met the boy's father, one Mr. McCleaver, but Charlie's associates were all brutes of one sort or another. So it was something of a surprise when the boy proved to be a bright young thing, expensively educated and with a gentle manner that reminded Ada of the dull, soft-spoken aristocratic boys she'd grown up with. All the same, the boy inspired a sort of instinctive affection in her that was in no small part related to the fact he possessed a death already as large as Charlie's own. Like so many men, Charlie had returned from France with a death like an attack dog, all fury and wicked teeth. But the McLeaver boy was too young to have fought, too young for the death he carried. Although a death could be quickened or stunted for any number of reasons, in most minds, a young face with a death so grotesque meant only one thing, the deprivation of poverty. No matter how bright the boy was, or how adeptly he answered the questions put to him, not one of the colleges would touch him, not even King's, not with a death like his. For Ada, who was by then well accustomed to walking disguised, the solution came readily. The boy merely needed to carry her death in place of his own to the exams and the college dons would be none the wiser. She'd put the idea to Charlie and he flatly forbade it. Ada, determined that she'd be allowed to shoulder her own risks, had been ready for his refusal, quietly explaining that she had no intention of allowing another man to touch her death. The boy would carry it in a set of panniers, which was all the fashion amongst the younger scholars. Invariably, keen cyclists who enjoyed the ease of being able to sling a pair of saddlebags over a back wheel at a moment's notice. Ada rather thought it was also preferred as a means of demonstrating figure, 
for only a healthy death could fit inside a set of panniers. And only a healthy death, having not yet developed the strength and agency to move unaided, needed to be carried. Whether or not this was the case, the panniers helped make the plan more palatable and, eventually, she persuaded Charlie to give his permission. On the day of the exams, the boy locked his death in his room. Ada cupped her own death in her hands and placed it securely into a set of purpose-bought panniers, which the boy took from her with careful reverence. Thinking little of what would happen next beyond her own excitement at the daring of it, she sent him off with a wave and a packet of sandwiches wrapped in paper. And then, in the long hours that followed, Ada discovered the sweet agony of being parted from her death. Despite its absence, she continued to feel its ghostly weight in the crook of her arm. She kept reaching into her sleeve to stroke its fur and being surprised every time her fingers closed on thin air. Not being able to see or touch her death agitated her to the point where she found herself pacing the kitchen floor, compulsively worrying the collar of her dress between finger and thumb. The intensity of it was surpassed only by the relief that flooded her when the boy finally returned. A relief so overwhelming that she hadn't been able to resist scooping up her death and burying her face in its smoky fur. Apparently not having suffered the same agitation, the boy stared. Ada didn't care. Yes, she thought. This is what it means to live, to suffer and to overcome, to know and endure the pain of mortal existence. The sensation was intoxicating, nearly enough to make up for the long lifeless years she'd spent trapped in the decorous confines of her father's home, and before long, the need to feel it anew would come to consume her. In that moment, though, she was simply happy. What's more, the ploy worked. The boy was offered a place. It caused quite a stir when he turned up at the start of term with his true death in tow, but by that point, the Dons could hardly rescind their offer. Mr. McLeaver sent flowers and even Charlie offered her a word or two of praise. And then, a few weeks later, he came up with a new plan. I've been thinking about what you did for the McLeaver boy, he said one evening as he unlaced his boots. Oh? Strikes me there are many more who'd benefit from the loan of a young, healthy death. Some of them would pay over the odds for it, too. Ada sat perfectly still on the edge of the bed, watching as Charlie unfastened the buttons that ran down the front of his shirt, his silver signet ring glinting in the light. I thought you didn't like me making the trade, she said carefully. His death reared its head from where it lay coiled at his feet. Charlie reached a calming hand to it, his fingertips brushing dark fur. Then he turned his pale eyes onto Ada. Since when do you care what I like? That had been the end of the discussion. In the following days, weeks and months, Ada had loaned out her death numerous times, mostly to wealthy older gentlemen of fractious disposition. There had been businessmen needing to prove their vitality to their investors, philanderers eager to demonstrate their virility to their mistresses, and several of Charlie's associates who sought to ease their applications to various gentlemen's clubs by concealing the evidence of their more humble origins. Their deaths were invariably advanced and grim, such that the men themselves seemed only too pleased to get away from them, and Ada quickly grew accustomed to shepherding them around as if they were her own, which in turn afforded new delight. People took one look at her and saw tragedy, a young pretty woman with a terrible death, and begging on the pavement in her ragging dress, 
no one ever recognized her. Once the mayor's wife had thrown her tuppence without so much as a second glance, even though the two women had spoken at length when Charlie had taken Ada to the new market races, the efficacy of the deception was every bit as thrilling as it was when she donned one of Charlie's suits. Ada spent many of the fallow hours between trades dreaming of the next. Her customers, she noticed, did not exhibit the same agitation upon leaving their deaths behind and only returned to them with reluctance. Accordingly, she was always careful to hide how she longed for the fierce pain and joy of being separated from and reunited with her death. No one but she knew exactly how much she'd come to rely on that rush of fear and relief. And if Charlie did notice something was amiss, he turned a blind eye. The trades made good money. The men paid Charlie upwards of a pound an hour, of which he kept half and gave the rest to Ada. It was a steady income, one that Ada supplemented with the money she made begging. Charlie didn't know about that. He'd have stopped her if he had, and Ada made sure he didn't find out. The opportunity to make extra was too good to miss. She told herself it was an escape fund, like the one she'd squirreled away when preparing to flee her father's house, and that she knew better than to trust a man like Charlie Bowman with her future. In truth, she was simply hooked. Every coin offered as comfort seemed to weight the scales in her favour, to bring into close alignment the actuality of her appearance with her vision of herself. Not the bored daughter of a minor aristocrat, but a real woman, occupying a physical space in the world, and standing to her share of suffering along with the rest. The coins were proof, and she kept them in a box under a loose floorboard in the bedroom, along with the unopened letters from her mother. Now, as she sat waiting for her next customer, Ada wondered how much longer she could keep trading her death. As much as she might wish it would grow into a snarling, yellow-eyed beast like Charlie's, she knew that its youth and health were, for now, all that made her useful. But perhaps if she became pregnant, she'd seen the young women walking up and down Romsey Road, their bellies swollen and their deaths too large to conceal, loping along behind them on all fours with pelts that gleamed blood red in the sun. Charlie once said that they reminded him of how the men's deaths had grown to look in the trenches. Even if the women did survive giving birth, their deaths would never recover to what they had once been. The idea filled Ada with a heady mix of desire and dread. Mrs. Bowman? Starting at the sound of Charlie's name pronounced by an unfamiliar voice, Ada looked up to see an elderly gentleman standing before her. His hair was grey and there were dark rings under his eyes. He looked as thin and tired as his death was powerful and alert. This had to be the man. Call me Ada, she said. He bowed his head offered his own name in return, and then pointed at the space on the bench beside her. May I? Please. The man sat with obvious relief, and Ada noticed his breath was strained and arduous. She was used to trading with men who, no matter how grim the deaths they bore, spoke with the self-assured confidence of those accustomed to getting their own way. But this man's tone was gentle and courteous. Forgive me, he said. I am not well. I do not think I have much time left. Ada believed him. His death had the same watchful stillness that her grandmother's had adopted in her last days, and Ada regarded it with an intense curiosity. She'd been barred from the room when her grandmother died, 
her father claiming that it was not fit or safe for one with a young, impressionable death. Although she'd heard stories of how a death transformed in its final moments, the sudden engorgement, the savagery, she longed to witness it for herself. In just a few days, she thought, this man would die and see that alteration firsthand. Why, he barely looked fit enough to carry the panniers and was clearly in no position to go ahead with the trade, which was a shame. With a death like his at her side, she could make a killing. Thinking it best to cut her losses, she adopted a bright manner and sought to send him on his way, offering to release him from their agreement and saying she was sure Charlie would return his money when she explained the circumstances. The man shook his head. I'm due to meet my nephew within the hour. He's not seen me in many years and knows nothing of my illness. I don't want him to worry, nor do I wish him to take word to his mother, my sister, and cause her to worry. Not before it's time. Ada said nothing to this. The man might be able to hide his death, but he couldn't hide the gaunt pallor of his face or the incessant tremor of his hands. Apparently thinking along similar lines, he glanced down at Ada's death in her lap and emitted a soft, wheezing laugh. Though I'm not sure my nephew will believe I have quite such a fine death as yours. Unbidden, an image sprang into Ada's mind of herself hunched on the pavement. The terrible creature stretched out beside her and her heart swelled with longing. It really was too good an opportunity to miss. Finally, she relented. The panniers hide most of it, she explained, indicating the leather bag slung over the back of the bench. Your nephew will never notice. He gave a weak smile. I see you've thought of everything. And I simply leave Yorick here with you? Ada was about to ask what he meant and then stopped herself, suddenly certain of his meaning. The man was referring to his death. He had named it, as though it were nothing more than a child or a pet. Ada had never heard of such a thing. A death was a part of you, as much as the heart in your chest or the brain in your skull. Such things were beyond names. Seeing her confusion, the man leant in a little closer. I know it isn't usual. It started as a foolish joke. Hamlet, you know. But then the name stuck. The more I called him Yorick, the more he seemed to be a Yorick. The more he seemed to be, well, a he. I see, lied Ada. She looked from the man to his grey death and then to her own, curled sleepily in her lap. It was hers, and she felt a deep pang of affection for it, but she could no more name it than she could her left elbow. For the man to have named his death, it suggested a fondness that was at odds with his manner, for whenever his eyes fell on the creature, his expression became drawn and fearful. She didn't see what was so funny about the name either. Maybe you had to know Hamlet to get the joke. Still, if he brought him some kind of comfort, then she wasn't going to argue. Well, yes, sir. You just leave your Yorick with me. I'll take care of it, him, and meet you here in two hours, I think Charlie said. Yes, said the man. Two hours should be more than sufficient. We shall be dining in the University Arms should you need to find me before then. With a nod, Ada picked up her death and tucked it into the nearest pannier. Then she helped the man to his feet and placed the panniers over his shoulder. He stooped a little under the weight and then smiled, the skin around his eyes creasing. Thank you, he said. You've been ever so kind. 
He set off down the road in the direction of Parker's Peace, the vast common that bordered the old town centre. Ada watched until he was out of sight, welcoming the familiar tightening grip around her heart as her death was taken further and further away. Then she looked back at the man's death, sitting obediently where it had been left. Yorick. At least its ridiculous name didn't diminish the severity of its appearance. Settling herself on the pavement with her back to the wall and the man's death beside her, Ada allowed the anguish of separation to warp her expression into something forlorn and desolate. A passing Magdalene scholar, he could have been the very twin of the man who'd sneered at her not twenty minutes before, took one look at the death and tossed a coin into her lap, his brow sympathetically furrowed. It occurred to Ada how strange it was that folks didn't mind seeing a woman's death so long as it seemed she was about to die. By the end of the first hour, there was one and six on the paving slab in front of her. By the end of the second, she had just over five shillings in change and the man's death, if anything, looked larger than ever. There was more money to be had, Ada was sure, but with only a few minutes to spare, she picked up the coins from the ground and pocketed them, repairing to the bench before the man could return and discover that she'd been profiting from his death. The seconds ticked by. Five past the hour. Ten past the hour. The darkness was drawing in, the blue-grey sky streaked through with the red of the setting sun. Still the man did not return. No matter, Ada thought, relishing the grip of agitation that squeezed ever tighter around her heart. He wouldn't be the first of her customers to return late. The longer he was delayed, the greater the satisfaction of relief would be when he finally returned. But no sooner had she thought this than the man's death, his Yorick, up and bolted, barreling away from her down the pavement at breakneck speed. Ada stared. A death flight like that meant only one thing. The man was about to die. She cursed. If the death found its man in the middle of a crowded restaurant, an apparently spared death peering sightlessly out from the panniers. She should never have allowed the trade. Charlie should never have allowed the trade. Not with a man so close to the end. The signs had been obvious. In his condition, anything could have happened. A shock, perhaps. Or even the sudden relief of having successfully pulled off his deception. And now he was dying. Ada leapt to her feet and ran, weaving through the pedestrians with her skirts flying behind her, running in pursuit of the death as it bounded in the direction the man had gone more than two hours ago. Past Sydney Sussex and, shortly after, past Christ's. The death did not stop or ease up for so much as a moment. Then she felt it, like an unexpected blow to the stomach from an almighty fist, jolting her to a standstill and seizing her lungs mid-breath. The hair on the back of her neck stood on end and her heart beat violently against her ribs. There was no mistaking that suffocating pain. How could he? How dare he? But there was no time to think, for the death had not stopped running. Ada had never seen a death move so fast, its feet barely touching the ground as it raced on with spectral grace. It was all she could do to keep up. Her breath was coming hard and heavy with the effort and her legs burned. Still she ran. Soon they had passed Emmanuel, and then Ada could see Parker's piece stretching out ahead, a shadow common in the twilight, the faint beam of the solitary lamp that stood at the centre doing little to dismiss the drawing darkness. 
Rather than bounding into the university arms like she expected, the man's death bolted straight past the imposing edifice of white stone and marble pillars, and then carried on running, turning down the footpath that sliced through the heart of the piece. Ada followed close behind, her boots pounding the compacted earth. She could barely see where she was going, but she knew the footpath well and the darkness eased a little as she drew close to the solitary lamp at the crossroads that marked where the realm of the university ended and the domain of the city began. The lamp was known as the checkpoint, and Ada passed it every time she came into town, the wrought iron as familiar to her as the knocker on her own front door. So she noticed at once the strange bulge of shadow where a figure slumped against the base of the lamppost. It was him, the dying man, and he was holding her death in his bare hands. She snatched it away from him, lifting it up to cradle in her arms, stroking its fur and pressing it fiercely to her chest. Dizzying relief overwhelmed her. She clutched her death tightly, wild with the certainty of being once again whole. Then anger prized open her eyes and directed her attention to the man lying crumpled on the ground. He had touched her death. Ada turned on him, spitting, snarling, half ready to crash her boot into his ribs, keening to administer the same wrenching pain she'd suffered at his hands, too wild with fury to consider that in fleeing the restaurant the man may well have saved them both a great deal of trouble. But he didn't so much as glance at her, didn't seem to be even remotely aware of her presence. His eyes glassed over in the lamplight and focused on one thing only. It happened quickly. He reached his arms out toward his death, towards his Yorick, and the death threw back its head and gave a mighty howl that split the twilight. It was twice the size it had been a moment before and terrible to behold. No longer grey but a vivid, glimmering black like a creature of living shadow. It leapt for the man, savaging him in an animal embrace that obscured him from sight. And then it was gone, dispersed, leaving nothing behind but a deathless corpse. Ada fell back. For a long while she stayed frozen to the spot and stared fixedly across the common, not daring to look down. The exhilaration of the chase and her fierce anger drained from her like the oozing pus of a blister that, when lanced, leaves behind nothing but a coin of loose, shriveled skin, thin enough to tear at the slightest touch. She'd been sucked dry, carved out. After all this time fantasizing about the intensity of feeling that must accompany being party to real tragedy. And she wasn't sad, or frightened, or horror-struck. She wasn't anything. She was empty, as though bearing witness to the ultimate negating act had caused something in her to be negated also, and purged her of all sensation. No longer could she feel the cold tang of night or the ache in her legs. No longer could she see the vapour of each gasping breath or the shadows that closed about her. All else was still. For a moment, the world became nothing and was populated by nothing. Nothing but her and her death. Then, at long last, she returned to herself. She came alive to the soft breeze grazing her lips, the slow throb of blood in the veins of her wrists and throat, the way the rough fabric of her underclothes lay against her skin. She swallowed hard. Gripping her death more tightly to her chest, she made herself look at the man's body. There was something obscene about the staring vacant eyes and how the skin seemed to become waxen and drawn in the yellow lamplight. 
She knelt beside the corpse and numbly closed its eyelids with her right hand. Then she straightened and tipped her head to one side, squinting as she tried to tell herself the man was only sleeping. But there was no escaping the absence at his side where his death should have lain. She tore her gaze away with a hollow cry, unable to bear the sight for another moment. As if by way of reassurance, her own death flowed up her arm and curled itself around her neck. It felt heavier than before, and she could see its bristling fur was streaked through with red. She knew instinctively that this alteration was permanent. Brought about as much by bearing witness to the man's dying moment as by the deep physical stress of being molested, the small vulnerable thing hardening against the unsolicited touch of a stranger. Ada shuddered and then reprimanded herself. It was what she wanted, wasn't it? For her death to grow and develop. She should be glad. If she was lucky, soon it would be large enough that she would no longer have to pretend suffering with the deaths of other men. At just that moment, her death raised its head. Ada stared, her thoughts falling silent. Then two new eyes flickered open to regard her. They were yellow with black slits notched across the center, the feline eyes of a hunter. Ada shuddered again. There was no doubting now whether her death was awake, not with those eyes patiently trained upon her. As if from nowhere, she found herself remembering the McCleaver boy and his confusion at her evident delight upon being reunited with her death. It hadn't been like that for him, nor for the rest of her customers, who were only restored to their deaths with the greatest of reluctance. She'd wondered at it often before. Now, at last, she thought she finally understood why. What it meant to possess a full-grown death. The horror that one might seek to contain, however ineffectually, with a joke or a name. A knot in her heart tightened, and this time, she realized, there would be no easy relief. In all her longing, she had never once imagined this dread, this fervent need to escape the watchful stare of her own death. Oh my, how they do grow up. That reminds me of some good advice I heard once. What steps should you take when death is bearing down on you? Big ones. The voice you heard in tonight's exhibit was that of Jasmine Arch, a narrator, writer, and poet whose brain thrives on chaos and caffeine. She lives in a rural corner of Belgium with four dogs, two elderly horses, and a husband who knows better than to distract her when she's writing. Find out more about her and her work at jasminearch.com. And now, friends, to send you off with one of my favorite traditional toasts. May we never go to hell, but always be on our way. Gallery of Curiosities is produced under a Creative Commons International 4.0 non-commercial attribution, no derivatives license. Story copyrights remain with the authors. This episode was produced in August of 2021.
For full show notes, visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com. Ah, who made my tea this evening? I said, more arsenic, not less. Keep it up, and you shall be a strange smell in the attic.